Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know all about the devastation of defeat when you lose a Little League baseball game because your own child couldn't get a hit. But I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. That's the point of this podcast. I'm joined today by the one, the only, the special, Carolyn Foley. How are you today, Carolyn? I apparently I'm doing better than you because we did not lose in softball. Oh. <laughs> but that's because no, it's because we don't play. So <laughs> Oh, well that would be a reason. No, this was baseball. It actually wasn't. It wasn't my I shouldn't trash my kid in the podcast. He he did great. Uh the fault is entirely with the assistant coach. Um I'm the head coach for the record. Anyway, but today let's jump straight in. Uh, you know, we got a jam-packed show. I'm super excited about our interview. It's based on um, a book that I, I, I've read part of, but I can't wait to read the rest of. And uh, so we are going to go straight into it. It's just, um, just a book that you legitimately messaged me and said, oh my goodness, I think I love this book. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, th- I yeah. think I love this book. I do. And, and um, so I'm, I'm super fired up anyway to talk to the author of it, um, who is definitely not muted on the Zoom right now and may not ever <laughs> chime in. Uh, so that is good. And uh, uh, news, news, Great Lakes news. Let's do it. We have Great Lakes news today. Carolyn, you haven't done Great Lakes news before, have you? I haven't. No. So I'll just sit back and watch. Have you heard the Great Lakes news theme song? I have not, so let's hear it now. It's among our best. And now it's time for the Great Lakes News. Here's your host, Stuart Carlton. Thank you for that, Stuart. And the star of Great Lakes News, the one, the only scientist of Boda of Great Lakes Now. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm still laughing about the country theme song. I love it. <laughs> it's, I mean... You know, it is what it is. We all love it. We all love it. And it's, it's uh, top-notch work, uh, worth every penny that we paid for it. So, it's, <laughs> so my understanding is you got three stories for us. Is that, the, is that, is that right? Three stories? Uh, it was a little bit, Stuart. I have three topics. The first topics. one. The first one is. My, it's more of a topic than a story. <laughs> no, because I'm sneaking in more than one story with the first one because uh-huh. it's a project. That's why you're a news professional. (laughs) Shameless self-promotion here. We've discussed this before. But yes, uh, we have three. GreatLakesNow.org is our news site. We have a monthly show on PBS stations. And we bring you news about the lakes you love. Uh, Sometimes it's not as good news, which is how we're going to start this week. But I promise, Stuart, the third one will have you smiling, I think. Maybe. (laughs) At least it's an iconic symbol that, you know, has a good story. Meeting with you every few weeks has me smiling. Oh, there we go. (laughs) All right. Anyway, uh, so the first thing that we are going to talk about today is coal ash. So that is what's left over after we burn coal for energy, uh, which goes on much less now than it used to. But all those decades of burning coal left us with. That's your cue, Stuart. You're supposed coal to guess. Ash? Unless it's coal, coal ash. ash. Oh, yes. I got it. Nailed See, it. You are. I like to see if you're paying attention. I, uh, I, was, so... not. I was trying to find the website. So um, coal ash is uh, a political football, to put it bluntly, and make everyone read our stories. Oops, did I say that out loud? Okay, anyway, <laughs> coal ash is really a serious topic of concern for a lot of environmentalists and communities and companies if they're looking to protect their sites from spilling this coal ash into drinking water, for example, the Great Lakes, other waterways. And that has happened where ponds have flooded and the heavy metals that are in the ash from when it is burned get into water and, you know, have wiped out some waterways. So I can't prote- I can't take credit for all of this because this project was actually done by journalism students at Northwestern University. Their professor, Carrie Leiderson, has been a writer for Great Lakes Now, been on our show. And so she brought us this package of stories and said, would you be interested in publishing them? The Energy News Network is going to publish a dozen stories from an international project, but they also have a lot of focus on the Great Lakes. I, of course, said yes. Anything I can do without working is always good. But also, we didn't only publish the stories. We built our monthly show out of it because we think it's really that important of an issue. When we're talking really serious water quality issues, it's impossible to say exactly what the risk is, like many environmental topics, and what risk we are all willing to live with. And what is the risk and reward or cost, uh, either financially to... uh, 
prevent these things from happening or cleaning up are all part of this discussion. And so there's a series of stories that range from Waukegan, Illinois, Joliet, the Finger Lakes, where there's a Bitcoin mine that's of concern, um, some other national stories that you can go to greatlakesnow.org slash coal ash and see this entire project, really a lot of good in-depth reporting. And I got to give the students props here. A Bitcoin mine. Wait, what? Now I'm confused. No, no, what? don't ask the question. So, don't do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want the feedback. No, just I feel like that would be a whole episode in and of itself. Like, yeah. All right. We're not, I'm sorry, we're not having a whole episode on Bitcoin mining. All right. Oh, but coal ash, Stuart, I tried to get you to do a whole episode on coal ash. So instead, I'm just going to keep talking about our project. <laughs> well, there's story one. Go to see the coal ash thing. Uh, we have, it has been demanded. The show has been taken hostage. Uh, uh, it has been hostily, uh, it's a hostile takeover. It's now we must at at do coal ash. <laughs> we'll do that. But for now, story two. Story two. So story two is also kind of a series of stories that is ongoing, and it's also really a national issue. So I know this is teach me about the Great Lakes, but the Great Lakes are also have similar issues to places all over the country, especially when it comes to harmful algal blooms. So this, of course, makes headlines for Lake Erie. We get a forecast every year because back in 2014, that pesky blue-green algae shut down the drinking water system for the city of Toledo, Ohio. Well, nothing gets scientists and policymakers and lawmakers' attention like a crisis, right? So a lot of work has been done since then on monitoring the bloom. Uh, You've had Eddie on to talk about the buoys and water quality control that are there. And there has also been for a few years a documentary in the making. It's called The Erie Situation, and that's uh, starting to make the film festival circuit and will make in its broadcast debut on PBS, some of the PBS stations around Lake Erie. So in the kind of the seasonal thing, it's not just the documentary, but the news that's out there about the algal bloom, you know, this has been an issue in Lake Erie. We have uh, a Q&A from a researcher talking about kind of what those priorities should be. And then also some other stories that are, so again, this is kind of a series of stories and an ongoing issue, but you know, I didn't realize until I was doing the research for this, just how many states have problems with algal blooms just in the last month, you know, even beyond the Great Lakes, beyond their Great Lakes coast, Pennsylvania and New York, and then most, like a lot of West Coast, California, Montana, Oregon, Utah, Idaho, all have issues with the harmful algal blooms. Um, I mean, I, I sort of skipped over what they are, Stuart, because I, being a member of your audience, know how smart your audience is yes, for this podcast. Yes. But Smarter than I am, except in one specific choice they make, but that's okay. (laughs) But, you know, it is a serious issue for drinking water and also pets. I think a lot of people don't realize how dangerous these blooms can be for pets, kids that get in the water. If if your dog is drinking the water, then that can be a real problem. And there have been deaths in Lake Erie. So the bloom forecast in Lake Erie was for being a little bit better than normal. As we're recording this, we're having cool weather and I'm knocking on wood that we don't jump back to 100 degrees again. But Harmful algal bloom is an issue we keep an eye on. And, um, you know, where I guess I'll, I'll give the shout out. We're always looking for the new research. What's what's going to be happening that's, that scientists are working on in conjunction with the communities that need to know they draw their water from the lakes and systems where these blooms occur. What's going on in that regard to keep us all safe? So, yeah, so that's fantastic. And um, we will be having a live show talking about issues on Lake Erie. Okay, this gives me a chance to be promotional. If you're interested in Lake Erie, I know squat about Lake Erie, I'll be honest. Um, I, In fact, I drove to Buffalo this summer, and I was super excited because I thought I would get to see Lake Erie as I drove through Cleveland. But the car was kind of short, and the highway barriers were high, and so I saw no Lake Erie. I was so upset. I was on the phone with my dad, not that I was talking while he was driving, of course, but – but um, and and – I was like actively set. So I've never even seen Lake Erie. I've been to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but not seen Lake Erie. Stuart, it, it is my job as the Great Lakes Now program director to be the ambassador of tourism for the Great Lakes as well. And I'm just going to point out, you could have pulled off the interstate. That would have been an option. And, okay, that just, would have been just, an say, option. just making sure you know that's available. I, yeah, once I go, white line fever. But anyway, um, so so I'm excited to learn about Lake Erie. And the way I'm going to do it is this, because I'm going to do it the laziest way possible, which is to have fun doing it. And the way that we're going to do it is with our live show, September 13th, live from uh, Masthead Brewing Company in Cleveland, Ohio, as part of Sea Grant Week. So if you're going to be at Sea Grant Week, or if you just live in Cleveland, like I assume many of you do, most of the listeners may live in Cleveland for all I know, come to Masthead Brewery about 8 o'clock, we think. And we're going to have uh, uh, Chris Winslow the director of Ohio Sea Grant, the first Sea Grant bigwig we've ever had. 
Uh, and we're going to play a fun game with Chris. He knows a lot about a lot of different uh, issues in Lake Erie. And so we're going to probe his knowledge um, live. Masthead Brewery, or just wait and it'll download it. And that's later. Sadly, no, uh, no Great Lakes news on that one, Sandra. I apologize. Well, that's okay. I'll still listen to it. But for right now, what is story three? Okay, so story three is about the Isle Royal Wolves. So, Stuart, you are new to the Great Lakes region. Do you know where Isle Royal is? I do know where Isle Royal is, actually, thanks to uh, our guest on episode number, uh, what was it, three? We invited Laurie Neuenheis, who is an author and adventurer. She wrote a book about wandering the Great Lakes, walking around all of the Great Lakes, and she talked to us a bit about Isle Royal and about how she was out there and... um, uh, she carried uh, uh, wolf or moose moose heads, moose skulls as part of like this um, community science thing. So if you look on the Great Lakes, I'm not even kidding. If you look on our very cool artwork by Joel Davenport, you will see a moose skull. And that was inspired. That was inspired by the uh, the moose community science that Lorraine Neuenheis does um, and other people on Isle Royal. So that is the extent of my knowledge of Isle Royal. OK, but, you know, there are wolves on Isle Royal. You know that? I'm just learning there are wolves on Isle Royale. Okay, so this goes back, I mean, I don't even want to say how many decades, but I remember going to Isle Royale with my family when I was in junior high. I mean, some kids got to go to Disney World. I got to go to Isle Royale with a backpack. And I remember how, what an impression that made that there were moose and wolves on that island, uh, you know, that we were hiking around. So, and, you know, they, it's sort of a very unique place in the Great Lakes. It's one of the most remote and least visited national parks. And so the wolves and the moose are often making headlines uh, many for many years because their populations were in a bit of trouble, like down to two wolves on the island. And so there has been a story that we have on our website at greatlakesnow.org. And it was written by John Flesher, who's the Associated Press environmental writer. We talked about him in a previous episode. Boy, John, getting the word out about the Great Lakes and that international news network. We appreciate that. So anyway, the it looks like the gray wolf population has made a really dramatic comeback this year, and they think it's as many as Stuart. Guess how many wolves they believe are on Isle Royal now? All right, I'm going to do it, but we're going to do it uh, the way that we do it, which always works. So I'm going to take a guess, and you're going to tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. So here we go. Uh, 14,697. Oh, that's it. How did you know? (laughs) Okay, I'm joking. These podcasts are hard. People can't see me laughing. But no, 28, which is, you know, really. That's huge, though. It is. It is. And really, you know, I look at this, the the story that we have, uh, again, from John, that talks about the, the numbers of the moose population, too, because, you know, Stuart big question here what do you think the relationship is between the wolves and the moose on isle royal funny you should ask they eat them which way well who knows <laughs> no the wolves eat the moose the wolves eat the moose very moose good can't eat. they're that fast the wolves do eat the moose. And so, um, you know, so they live in tandem with complicated ecosystem, another theme of the show. So, you know, the moose population up and down as well. But right now there are uh, several hundreds of moose on the island and that's sustaining the wolf population of about 28 right now. So this is this is interesting. This actually does touch into something. And that that is that is great news. This touches into a couple of things that I do happen to know a little bit about, not about Iowa Royal specifically. But um, wolf introductions is one of the foundational like creation myths of my field, essentially, of the human dimensions of, of conservation, because wolves were, I think, completely extirpated, which means locally extinct in the northern um, rocky areas in the 20th century, if not completely, then virtually completely. And um, in the 90s, which is when my field was fairly young, but, but starting to really develop, uh, a lot of social scientists did work to analyze the costs and benefits of, of moose, or not, uh, excuse me, wolf reintroduction. And um, they found that, you know, the costs of the reintroduction, like the economic costs were going to be low, uh, like on the order of 1% of the benefits of reintroducing uh, the wolves because people will come to see them and, and things like that. And so uh, uh, that was 
that was some of the really important work. And then in the early part of the 20th century, the, they reintroduced them. Uh, the U.S. federal government reintroduced them, and it's been a big, big success. Uh, there are like 100 mooses or mo- mo- uh, mooses. Come on, Stuart. Uh, wolves? I don't know why I'm talking about mooses. Uh, I do. It's your fault. But anyway, wolves. <laughs> I got moose on the brain. That big moose skull. Um, there are like 100 of them. There are, I think, 1,000 uh, in Idaho. And, and uh, so it was a real big success story. But then, of course, there, you know, there's a flip side. Um, right. Is- uh, you can see me going, wait a minute, Stuart. <laughs> success by whose measure and that's the problem with wolves is i mean you know it's a predator and people get legitimately nervous about them and i understand that right uh ranchers you know the the whole ranching community out there and i mean there have been there's been a lot of that i mean we're a little out of the great lakes region we don't have the same issues here but we do have you know the wolf hunt you know that's controversial in several of the great lakes states and whether that will happen or not but it will not on isle royal because it's a national park so. Yeah, so there it's 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 purely a success. That's what I was kind of thinking about. It's interesting because in the UP itself, uh, I found a 2007 study on the uh, I'll link to it on wolf um, acceptance capacity. There's this concept called wildlife acceptance capacity, which is like the most number of wolves that people will accept in an area. Um, and then on, there's also like the minimum tolerance, right? And and you have people who have different minimum tolerances. That's the minimum they want to have in an area. And the acceptance capacity is the most will stand. And the challenge with with uh, wolves is that uh, people have very different views on those um for some people the minimum tolerance is quite a few because they want to know that moose are there or wolves <sighs> they want to know the wolves are there uh, they all know that moose are there anyway and other people don't want any because of their their fear and so it, it is complicated but it's great to see this on an area where that the uh, complication is removed because of the national park um and it's it's great to like see to that, point happening. Out that this is probably the best example of all of the times i've co-hosted with Stuart. this is probably the best example that i'm like yep Stuart's not from the great lakes because anyone from the great lakes basin you hear isle royale and you're like wolves so there's and you're just talking yeah. about moose right now <laughs> sandra where can people go to find out more news about the lakes that they love you can find news about the lakes you love, Stuart, any day at greatlakesnow.org. Thanks so much for having me. You are welcome. And we will take you out with the Great Lakes Now theme song composed by... Clint Carpenter. We will take you out now with the Great Lakes theme song composed by the amazing Clint Carpenter. Our guest today is Dr. Lynn Heasley. She is a professor at the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University. And her most recent book is delightful, The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes. And it is the 2022 Nautilus Silver winner for Lyric Prose. Lynn, how are you today? I am fantastic today. It's a beautiful day. I got to teach my first class and and it was just so wonderful being back um, in person in the classroom with my students where we were all in three dimensions. That is good. Is this your first in person in a couple of years or, or has it been? It's it's the first in a couple of years because I was on research sabbatical last year. Oh, that'll do it. Um, what were you on research? Was that about the accidental reef or something something new? Um, so I had finished up the accidental reef and, and have been doing some book gigs re- related to that. But I've I've started new research extending from the accidental reef, but um, but but some new ideas, some new places that I'm exploring. So let's go to um, the book that is, has already been written, because I really want to ask questions about the, the new one. But um, so it's called The Accidental Reef, as we've mentioned, and is about a reef in the St. Clair River. So what is this reef and why is it accidental? Ah, yes. So um, The Accidental Reef is kind of the touchstone and, and maybe the, the heart and soul of the book. It's a tiny little spawning ground. Um, in the north channel of the St. Clair River Delta. 
And it's accidental because it's a little accident of industrial history. And, and perhaps we'll get more into this, but this was a, a this area was an industrial epicenter um, of American industry from about the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. And during that time, a, a particular steamship that was serving salt mines, um, a particular salt mine near Algonac, um, dumped its coal waste over and over and over in the same place. And this was in the exact decades when um, when lake sturgeon were about to be persecuted to near extinction in the Great Lakes as well. And so this little um, this little pile of coal clinkers, and I know that the audience won't see it, but I brought one here for you two to see. They look like little chunks of small lava. This little pile of coal clinkers became this unknown refuge for lake sturgeon during the years when they almost went extinct. And it wasn't located until the mid-1990s. And so it's the um, both the irony, but also the wonder that um, the product of the industrial history that actually compromised this area so profoundly also provided, you know, these safe harbor in places for, um, you know, fish like lake sturgeon, walleye, bass, um, and also kind of the, you know, spawning ground for some of the invaders eventually, like round gobies and zebra mussels. So it's just a spot for everybody to hang out. So <laughs> spot and it's a it's a gathering place. <laughs> and and I treat it as a gathering place in the book. So I um so even though as as you know, those ecological odysseys um spiral across space, across time, sometimes across eons, um, they gather at this little accidental reef and and so the 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 fish and other aquatic life encounter each other, but eventually I bring in um, scuba divers, fish biologists, and um, and other fishers and sports people who also um, co- connect with each other at the reef and transform each other and then spiral off into their own historical or ecological journeys. So I, I think we can sort of understand based on what you've already said, but but you use the St. Clair River and this accidental reef as sort of a, a starting off point for a broader discussion about the Great Lakes, right? Uh, maybe it, it spawns a discussion about the Great Lakes, as it were. And and so with that, uh, why why is it that the St. Clair River is such a great entry point in, in your mind? Why did you choose that as the starting off place? Well, it's, you know, I probably have three parts to the to that question um, in terms of my own answer. But um, first of all, I had wanted to write a book about the Great Lakes for a very long time because of my teaching. I teach American environmental history, Great Lakes history, um, introduction to environmental studies, water and environmental justice. And I've accumulated all of these stories and histories of the Great Lakes that even my Michigander students who grew up in this area didn't know about. Um, and sometimes they're very random. Like they might not have known that um, the equivalent board feet of a of a maple tree Henry Ford would use in one of his Model Ts. Yeah, they might not have known that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that Henry Ford himself had, had purchased 430,000 acres up in the UP of Timberland in order to serve, you know, his his factories down on the Detroit River. Um, so I wanted to put this together in a way um, into a bigger and complicated picture of the Great Lakes that still honored these stories. But the problem with that is it it, it became more like an encyclopedia in my mind. I, I could never I could never give it a structure or a shape. And and um, any of us could edit an encyclopedia of these stories. But that's not what I wanted to do. And the reason it was so hard for me is I'm very place-based myself, both in terms of my background, in terms of my approach um, to living in the Great Lakes, um, in terms to what I teach my students. And I needed a place. And so the St. Clair River had been very intriguing to me because there's literally no Great Lakes environmental issue that the St. Clair River either isn't a poster child for exemplifying so take toxic pollution from a century of industry, literally bombarding the, you know, the region, the, the river, but also the longer Huron-Erie corridor, um, or issues that actually got their foothold in the Great Lakes. And so the first establishment of zebra mussels was in the St. Clair River on the Canadian side, um, followed by round gobies, followed by quagga mussels. And so that whole series of Pontocaspian invaders got themselves established and first identified in the St. Clair River. Um, so that's two things. One, that that issue of a place. Two, the centrality of the St. Clair River itself for all of the Great Lakes issues and, and problem solving we care about. 
And then the third is I, I've got a soft spot always for places that people don't and people um, that aren't fully appreciated. And so the St. Clair River is big sister, so to speak, would be the Detroit River. And that's where a lot of the study, the books, the action, the um, the biodiversity promotion, it's always the Detroit River. And yet there's so much happening in the St. Clair River. And so it was my chance to honor the um, the lesser known of, of, of the corridor, which would be the St. Clair River. That's fantastic. So um, it's such an important spot for the ecology. But then I remember a couple of years ago on Valentine's Day, our uh, our colleagues at the NOAA Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory had put out a series of Valentines. And one of them was focused on the St. Clair River Delta. And there were a number of people who commented on social media like, oh, so glad to see this getting some love. So <laughs> I think you're not you're not alone there. Um, so you mentioned that um, you have some some readings in the books and, and you talked a little bit about the, the gathering space for for different um like that, that the St. Clair River and this reef in particular um, ha- is completely affected by anything that happens in the Great Lakes. I wonder if you can share um, your story about sharing uh, zebra mussels as villains. Oh, okay. So zebra mussels as villains. Yes, I'll um, I'll do a, a reading in which I put both my um, my historian's hat, which won't be totally apparent, but the framing of it, any environmental historian would recognize the turn that I make, Um, but also the storytelling involving science and how we as Great Lakes citizens react to um, the incursion of a species like zebra mussels. And and often we, we vilify these newcomers who completely turn the existing food webs upside down and maybe threaten the place that we've come to love for so long. And yet, as soon as you vilify or tell that story, whether it's through science or whether it's through our visceral reactions, um, it oversimplifies and keeps us from understanding um, how these zebra mussels might connect, how eventually the ecosystem might adapt to them, um, but also keep, keeps us from knowing them as well for their own sake. So I'll do a little passage here. Um, let's see if I can find it. Um, so this is from the from chapter two of the book. L.P. Hartley once wrote that the past is a foreign country. Aquatic residents of today's St. Clair River would not recognize the same river of 1987. That was the year before zebra mussels. On first contact in the Americas, in Lake St. Clair, zebra mussels, Dreisina polymorpha of the family Dreisinidae, launched something akin to species-on-species combat. Hundreds or thousands to one, they would descend on some unfortunate native, Indigenous clams like Leptodea fragilis, Pecanodon grandis, Lampsilus silicoidea, Patomilus elatus, Elliptio dilatata, and 15 others of the family Unionidae or Unionids. A military field manual for a muscle attack might read like this. Attach yourself to the rear of the first Unionid you find. Do this by planting your foot on its shell. Note that your foot is actually a muscle. Press down. This stimulates the bissel gland in your foot to make upwards of 600 threads. Use the cement-strong grip of your sticky bissel threads to hold fast. Should you wish to detach, release an enzyme to dissolve the bissel thread proteins. Your opponent is large while you are little. With your comrades, pile on. 15,000 Dreisinids once sacked a single Unionid. So weigh down your clam, disrupt its movement, gash its home ground. Then, as the unionid inhales, creating a microcurrent in the water to suck in microfood into its waiting vent, intercept the food, filter it out of the water column. The native shell, thus fouled, it will starve from your intimate interference. Warfare is one way to see what happened below the surface of Lake Sinclair. Shell crashed on shell, and 18 unionid species dwindled then died out. The whole process, invade, colonize, dominate, extirpate, took eight years. This is how a Unionid would remember 1988 and beyond, if a clam had memories. Local clams were there first. They didn't deserve their fate. The place is poor for their loss. An ecological yin of interdependence, adaptation, and balance, countered by a brutal new yang of conflict, dislocation, and instability. One web of life torn apart. And yet, pause for a moment on words like native, 
invade, colonize, foul, extirpate, all in the scientific literature on zebra mussels. Are these objective verbs and, verbs and nouns, facts on the ground, exact accounts of ecosystem dynamics? Perhaps they're subjective, dramas with victims and villains, moral metaphors, tragedies. Biology's Latinesque language lends itself to science and storytelling, omniscience and emotion, Minerva and Mars. So how would Dracaena polymorpha retell the story if mollusks had memories? So this is something um, at the recent Joint Aquatic Sciences meeting, a, a colleague was holding on to um, another in, in like non-native species to the Great Lakes region, um, the a sea lamprey. And she said, she, she told me, she said, it's this majestic creature. And I thought, you're just doing what you do. And she said, I need to think that when I'm working with the muscles that they are just doing what they do. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. That was It shows the language. When you listen to that language, the war, the combat language, it really is like a very specific framing, right? And and uh, I think that the way you did that was just, I don't want to sit there and slobber all over everything. That was a brilliant piece of science communication because there's so much that you can learn in there, but it's done in such a, a narrative way. And so I have two questions to follow from that. What do you think about the, with non-native species in, in specifically thinking about the way that we talk about them and the specific language we use. Uh, how do you think that affects the way that people think about them? Uh, I, I, I think for one thing we do, um, we do create these, these villains and these heroes. A lot of it has to do with how we want to use the water and the place itself. Um, but I think one of the issues with that, that kind of combat language, and by the way, it's changing, you know, so even the, even the scientists themselves um, are considering and changing their storytelling and their language. I think what it does is take the sense of time out. And so even though this chapter is, is going to follow the evolutionary history of the zebra mussels, I don't really bring that up to date until later on in the book. And so we're not set you know, we're not set in one place in one time. And so eventually, for better or worse, when it comes to these, um, these non-native species, um, the aquatic ecosystems do adapt, they do adjust, they do change. And some of that is in ways that, um, that we either grieve because we're unhappy for, um, we're unhappy for the species that we do care a lot about. And some of it really is a kind of adaptation um, where we can see signs of hope later. And so later in the, in the book, there's a very well-known Unionid scientist um, at Central Michigan University, Dave Zanata. Um, and he's actually seen a few refugia of some of these native clams. And, and here's one of them. Um, I got this from the Black River. Um, but he and his he and his group they they sample and they're seeing some of them and so um, so what I think that the hero villain um, framing does is keep us from keeping track of complexity and then watching more closely over time how the system itself is changing and maybe that would drive some of our policy making and some of our interventions as well. Great. And then. Um you know, bringing this back to the, the accidental reef itself, thinking that, you know, what presumably was a dump that was not something that we would want could actually then be refuge for this uh, extraordinarily important, um, wonderful, I love lake sturgeon. So there's <laughs> you know, like, I got to hold the little ones and help them release them oh. one time. And they're, yeah, they're just incredible creatures. So, I mean, yeah, that like, there is an ability to adapt. That's really, really cool. And the the location and discovery of this accidental reef actually laid the groundwork for the more major discovery of a much larger and um, sturgeon spawning site under the Blue Water Bridge itself, which crosses from the U.S. to Canada. And um, and that's a key part of the story in the second part of the book, too, is how that that little accident of industrial history itself created the knowledge base for a couple of divers that I focus on who then go on to discover, um, again, I'll say probably the most important sturgeon spawning site in the Great Lakes system itself. 
And that very site would lead the Sturgeon one day to become a runner-up for the 2021 uh, Lakey for Animal of the Year. So that's that's really nice. I did not know that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, why why runner-up? I, I find that problematic. Because Carolyn wasn't on that particular episode. That's yeah. why. No, but, yeah, we have an awards <laughs> show at the end of each year. And and so uh, Sturgeon, runner-up is very good. Um, but the, the Piping Plovers won. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Monty and Rose breaking my heart this year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So my second question is this sort of building off the idea of language and I'm going to let the readers, actually, I'm going to call you listeners because you're listening right now and not reading. Um, I'm going to let the listeners in a little bit behind the curtain. And that is when we invite people on, we don't have time to do a full, uh, you know, review of their work. But so I gave myself two hours to prepare for the uh, interview with Lynn. And I knew she had this book. And she was like, are you going to read my book beforehand? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll skim it. So I was like, all right, I need to skim this uh, out of respect, of course. Um, but, I, you know, I can read a scientific paper if we're going to have a, like a scientist on in two hours. I can't read a whole book. And so I was like, let me just skim the get the high points. Of re-. And I found myself, I couldn't stop reading the book. I drafted zero questions um, during this whole two-hour period because I kept getting sucked into – because you know we've read other Great Lakes books before and they're, they're valuable. But, but the writing in this is so vital. Um, it's beautiful, of course, which is why it won this silver award for lyric prose. I assume that the silver award is the highest award. Um, and if there's a gold award, it, then you should have won the gold award. Um, it's hilarious in certain points, right? It, but what I really get is this feeling that you were there, like your personality, I don't know you, but I feel like your personality is just drenched, drenching this book. And so I, I guess my question is this. We as science communicators a lot, we work with scientists, and you are not like a natural or, or a biophysical scientist, but you know, we, we think a lot about the difference between or the trade-offs in allowing our personality out, right? Do people ever have you thought about that? Like how does that work with your work? Or do people ever push back on, on what you do and say, you know, it's too subjective or it's it's too in your voice to be good uh, you know, uh, good information? What are your thoughts on that, I guess? Well, I'll answer I'll answer that in two ways. One, um, even though I think I think any academic environmental historian or cultural geographer reading this would absolutely see the underlying research and the perspective um, that is historical and geographic at the same There's a lot of footnotes. <laughs> 50 pages of footnotes. So you don't have to read all of that. <laughs> yes, footnotes are kind of a compulsion for many of us, but um but at the same time, none of them would recognize it, in my opinion, as academic environmental history. And, and so I, I gave myself the freedom then to allow the passion, um, sometimes the subjectivity, sometimes the deep dives and random digressions. You know, probably some people might want to might not want to finish the little um, digression I took into filamentous bacteria in a paper mill. Um, but I wanted to imbue it with that life and that spirit and that sense of place and that sense of passion. Um, and so that meant, you know, leaving some of my academic street cred behind and shoving the academic street cred into the footnotes, you know, and that's another meeting ground, right? So you'll see, you'll see all the scientific literature, the historical literature, the literature literature. So, you know, so for people who want that, they can go right to the footnotes. Um, but I wanted to visualize and feel and experience because that's a major goal of the book, which is to help people see and know the Great Lakes differently than they do now. And it might not be all of the Great Lakes, but it might be a part of the Great Lakes. Um, back to your point on working with the scientists, what's really interesting about what you said is if you go out in the field with scientists, and I and my PhD is in forest and wildlife ecology, so I have a lot of, you know, science humanities interface in my, my background. Um, they're as passionate as anyone, you know, they are as excited as anyone. Um, one of the one of the profound moments that I had, very small, that stuck with me is I, I went out to to look at a river with um, with a former colleague who's retired now. And so he and his grad student were out sampling the river and he worked with caddisfly shells, you know, on the bottom of a rock. Um, so they did some sampling and, and he was going to return some of the fish that he had in the lab back into the river. And one of them got squashed by a rock. And he was very distressed that that fish got squashed by a rock. It really touched him. He wanted to safely release it. Um, so I, I think that that sense of passion and connection 
um, is a change in the last 20 years or so. We are allowing ourselves that because if we don't express our passion and connection, then how in the world can we inspire the public or other people to feel connected and passionate enough to work on these issues? And so, um, so I, I little plug for the scientists and their, their, their deep commitment and passion. That's fantastic. And so um, as someone who has thought way too much about how Bissell threads form that I, I got that, that all the, the science and the images, I was like, yeah, that's exactly it. It's just told in such a vivid way. It's really great. Um, so what other idea that you explore in the book is the idea of uh, water abundance in the Great Lakes in comparison with other areas? And you say that the Great Lakes has escaped the paradox of abundance. So um, what is the paradox of abundance and how did the Great Lakes escape it? Okay. All right. Um, I think, I think so that, um, so that listeners aren't completely confused. Maybe I'll set up the book structure a little bit and then where that paradox of abundance fits into the overall book structure. Um, And so the book is divided into three parts. Um, Part one is hyper-local, underwater, very ecological. And so at that scale, you know, I'm introducing the Great Lakes in this tiny little spot in the St. Clair River. Part two, just called um, On Seeing and Knowing an Underwater Biography. It's more that human scale that many of us are comfortable with, the scale of a river, the scale of communities engaging that river, learning that river, trying to problem solve on behalf of that river. Um, so where where many of us, where many of us exist professionally or personally. Um, and then part three of the book, the starting scale, are those epic scales that are almost beyond our imagination. The Great Lakes themselves as having, depending on whether you're consulting the USGS or the EPA, either 84% of (laughs) the fresh surface water in North America, or maybe I think the USGS says 95%, but I, I think, I think that's probably for the U.S. alone. Um, That's a scale that's hard to get your mind around. Um, But also, um, the history of the Great Lakes is one of extraction of its resources beyond anything that we can get our minds around. I mean, just the sheer immensity of resource after resource after resource. Um, The last two flocks of the passenger pigeons One was in Michigan, one was in Wisconsin, and there had been a time where people thought passenger pigeons could never run out, right? The same with Great Lakes, um, Eastern White Pine up in the UP and then Northern Minnesota and Northern Wisconsin. Um, So the immensity and scale, and then that's what connects us globally because we're part of that really extractive predator-based capitalist economy in which um, in which much of the Great Lakes has been, you know, sucked out in order to serve industry or to end up somewhere else in the world too. Um, so in terms of the paradox of abundance, the paradox itself um, is my argument that, and, and it marks probably much of environmental history, the very immensity or vastness of wealth and a particular resource or a particular part of the more than human world, its very immensity immediately lays the seeds for its destruction, you know, its extraction. Um, and that that extraction can happen too fast for the lags of, of human regret and policy to catch up with. Um, so that is the story of the Great Lakes. It's the story of North American environmental history, um, just extraction on a, on a large scale iron in the Mesabi range of Minnesota, um, eastern white pine here, um, salt, you know, we have we have some of the largest deposits of salt, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, well, my argument about water is that somehow the Great Lakes, as an immense body of water, have not followed that fate, that paradox of abundance. Um, we have not become the Aral Sea, Um, And we also don't have pipelines, you know, sending our water out to the Central Valley of California to irrigate their agriculture. So why is that? How is it that so far, and it's fragile and vulnerable, and um, there are horrifying kind of news accounts now um, that, that should raise great insecurity on this count for all of us in terms of Great Lakes water conservation. Um, But how is it that you know, no matter how polluted, um, no matter how abused in different ways, we still have 
um, over 20% of the world's surface freshwater relatively intact and not being diverted um, on a mass scale in a way that compromises its use for us and its use for the other creatures and beings who, who live among us too. And so the the partial answer that I and my colleague, Dan McFarland. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. All right. So now you set yeah. up the paradox, right? <laughs> and so, the, partial, so... the partial answer and maybe the whole answer is that it is a, an international body of water. So it is, it is jointly used and managed by the U.S. and Canada. And then I think we have to, to be fair, add in all of the tribes and First Nations. And so I will, you know, we might, we tend to call it binational. I would say we should call it multinational or trinational in certain places, especially the St. Clair River. Um, but the very, the very fact that it was, it was, um, that it occupies two countries and several other First Nations and, and tribal communities, that very fact meant that going all the way back to the 19th and early 20th century, the U.S. and Canada had to negotiate its future. They had to be proactive and anticipatory instead of reactive. And the paradox of abundance is one continual reaction after another. You know, clear cut the Great Lakes Forest. All right, we'll have new forms of forestry, but the Great Lakes Forest has been clear cut. Um, but with the Great Lakes, you had two countries who had to negotiate their use and negotiate their future together. And no matter how problematic that history actually has turned out to be, you did end up with the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 and the establishment of the International Joint Commission. And then eventually this legal scaffolding that that requires at least some forward-looking, future-looking anticipation of problems and trying to forego those problems ahead of time. So we do have this paradox of abundance that, that drives our use of immense natural resources, but so far, the, the, the international dimension of the Great Lakes um, has been protective of the Great Lakes in this one area. And just that so many people value it, and like all the tribes and everyone, um, too. It's strong, strong identity. So Fascinating thought that we were forced to be cooperative and forced to be proactive, and that, that makes a, a big difference. Well, this is really interesting, Lynn, and I, we're so glad that you've come on to tell us about this. And, and and I can't say enough how much I love this book. I love it enough that I'm actually going to read the whole thing, which uh, even though I was a literature major, that is a high bar to clear in my life uh, right now. But but learning about the Great Lakes and, and the St. Clair River and uh, the paradox of abundance is not actually why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is ask two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Hands down a sandwich, for sure. <laughs> the complexity of it, right? I live for complexity. <laughs> <laughs> so, a, donut is, a donut is sugar, salt, and fat. <laughs> right? I love it. That's right. You're not going to get a bouquet from a, a donut, right? You're not going to get, there's no umami. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's good. So uh, I think you're at what? You're at uh, Western Michigan, which is in Kalamazoo. Yeah, Kalamazoo. So I'm going to go to Kalamazoo and I'm going to stop by Bell's. I'm going to get myself a hop slam, two hearted ale. I'm going to sleep it off. And the next morning, I'm going to be, next day, I'm going to be hungry for lunch. And I'm going to want to go get a sandwich. Where should I go in Kalamazoo to get a really great sandwich? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, would you would you call a taco a sandwich too? Does a taco? Absolutely. Oh. Well, we're not getting into that, but tacos count. They count as a uh, we, the reason we don't ask about tacos is then the answer would be obvious to this question, right? We've got this little local place downtown. It's fairly new. Um, it survived COVID, thankfully. Um, and I and I always forget if it's Ma Familia or La Familia, um, but you can get their amazing taco. I think it's I think it's um, I think it's called Borrelia. It's their special taco. It's it's really fantastic. And and then get the dipping sauce that goes with it too. Um, really incredible. We will put a, a link to that in our <laughs> show notes at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash six five because this is episode sixty five. Okay. So what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience and what makes it special? Oh, I think that is the the feared question of all Great Lakes writers. <laughs> I think we're so afraid of that question. And and the reason we're afraid of it is because 
anyone who writes about the Great Lakes, um, and, and I'm part of a very large community of Great Lakes writers, actually, who do wonderful work, um, we're all intensely curious and love every place that we go. And so I think for me, if I'm going to answer that question um, for 2022, based on this summer, I think I would recommend a journey um, rather than a specific place. And the the journey would be to cross um, either the bridge at Detroit-Windsor or the Blue Water Bridge at Port Huron-Sarnia, go up the Bruce Peninsula, um, stop in Tobermory, catch the ferry, and spend some time on Manitoulin Island. And Manitoulin Island is the largest freshwater island um, in the world, but it's a it's a place that's not too far from us and that many, many people won't see in their lifetimes. Um, it's a gorgeous island. It's got many First Nations on it. Um, it's in Lake Huron itself. And Lake Huron is one of those lesser appreciated um, great lakes that people should get to know more. Um, and so I would say journey up the up the peninsula and go to Manitoulin Island. And then maybe circle back around on the, the North Shore and come back down um, via Sault Ste. Marie. I'd say do a circle. And this is not our first, believe it or not, this is not our first Manitoulin Island recommendation. Fabulous. Go listen to Teach Me About the Great Lakes number 54 titled Water is Sacred. And here, uh, Dr. Laura Lee McGregor uh, from the Ontario School of Medicine uh, and a member of the White River or Whitefish River First Nation. Anyway, uh, she also recommends Manitoulin Island. Well, uh, Dr. Lynn Heasley, uh, professor at the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University and author of what I promise will be a lakey nominee this year, <laughs> The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. It was a pleasure. Thank you both so much. fantastic guest i absolutely love that book uh, i can't wait to finish reading it like i said it just really sucked me in and it's a it's just a different way to get into these great lakes issues so I, yeah I it's an, it sounds like it's a great one hey and uh, we did plug it earlier but i want to remind everybody live show september 13th around eight o'clock at the masthead brewery masthead yep carolyn and i can't ever remember between the two of us we have trouble remembering if it's masthead or mastodon yes that's 100 percent accurate <laughs> <laughs> But we'll be out at the Masthead uh, Brewing Company is actually what it's called. And so come join us. It should be a lot of fun if you're there. And if you hit me up, I'll probably have stickers if you're there early enough. So uh, let's do that. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and we encourage you to check her work out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline it gets tons and tons of phone calls all the time. 765. Call us, people. We're lonely. 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. Beep, beep.